So for those who may not know me, or maybe you do know me, but you don't know this about me, I, growing up, my favorite subject was math. And there's a decent amount of engineers um, in our congregation, so I know there are some people here who are good at math. And I thought I was pretty good at math until I got to middle school and we started to dive into algebra. And I started to second guess my ability with math. And as time went on, I had to take algebra two. And that pretty much solidified that I'm not that good at math. <laughs> However, I had to continue to take math classes. And so I had to take geometry, which was a nightmare for me. And then had to take pre-calc and calc and statistics. And once I was done with statistics, they said, you don't have to take any more math classes. And that was a glorious day. That was really, really wonderful. Because what I realized is that I like simple equations. Those are enjoyable. But the more complex stuff is just a little out of my league when it comes to mathematics. And in today's text, we see a simple equation. Praise God. The equation is that for which we attain Christian maturity. I would submit to you, this is the whole point of the text here, that knowledge plus love equals Christian maturity. Knowledge plus love equals Christian maturity. The text this morning gets into knowledge. It gets into our responsibility and what we are to do with that knowledge. So we just read. It gets into how we can love one another. Yet, the Corinthians had knowledge, but they were lacking love. And Paul addresses this. Stephen Lawson points out, he said, they had full heads and empty hearts. Full heads and empty hearts. And so for those who have been tracking along with us, we have been going through this text, and so I just want to give some brief context for those who may not be aware of what's going on here in 1 Corinthians. This is Paul writing to a church that he founded in Corinth. He's writing in the mid-50s, so it's about, it's about 20 years or so after Jesus' earthly ministry. And this people, Corinth, they, he wrote to them, and then they responded and Paul heard a report from Chloe's people, which you see in chapter 1, and then he addressed that for the first seven chapters, and then in the beginning of chapter 7, he says, now concerning. And so then he starts to begin to answer their questions that they wrote back to him. And he goes through this. You'll see several times in the book, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. It's him addressing a new topic. And so this passage started off with now concerning food offered to idols. So Paul is now addressing this topic of food offered to idols. Now, as we've gone through the book of 1 Corinthians, there is a consistent theme that I've tried to lay before you each time. And the theme is unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not unity in their favorite speaker. I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. I follow Cephas. Not unity in whose side of the lawsuit they're on. Not unity even in the kind of food that they eat. But unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you'll look in your bulletin, there are three points that I want us to see. In the first six verses, we're going to look at knowledge. Then in the next six verses, we'll look at love. And then in the final verse, we'll look at Christian maturity. Knowledge, love, and Christian maturity. And so as I said in verse 1, Paul is shifting gears. He's starting a new topic here, food offered to idols. He said, now concerning. So that phrase indicates that there's a new issue that he's addressing, and the issue is food offered to idols. Now some historical context that we need to understand what's going on is that this food that was offered to idols, this was going on in Corinth, which was a very pagan city. There was a lot of religious practices, 
And so what would happen is that there would be pagan temples, and they would sacrifice parts of an animal. Not the whole animal, there would be parts. And so these temples would also function essentially as butcher shops. And so you could buy meat in the marketplace, which was more expensive. be farmers who brought meat and be more expensive because farmers had to make a living off of the meat. Or you could go to the temple and buy some of the leftover meat. And so early Christians were going and buying some of this leftover meat to be frugal with their money, to be good stewards of it. And so now this topic comes up. Is it okay to eat this food that was offered to idols? The Corinthians asked Paul what to do with it. Is this all right? And so Paul says in in verse 1, he quotes them. He says, all of us possess knowledge. This is likely something that they said in their response back to him. The ESV provides quotation marks. I don't believe the New American Standard does. And so it's a a translator's um, decision to put that in there to help you better understand the text. I think they made the right decision to include those quotation marks. So Paul is quoting something that they said. He said, yeah, all of us have knowledge. But this knowledge that you're referencing is puffing up. It's puffing you guys up. He says, but love builds up. And Paul wants them to understand the difference between knowledge that puffs up and the kind of knowledge that builds up. And so the, the question that might immediately come up when Paul says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, is, is Paul saying forget knowledge and just pursue love? We see this, I mean, and we'll see this even in Christian circles. We'll say, hey, look, doctrine divides. I don't want to get into that. I just want to love Jesus, man, and help other people love Jesus. Is that what Paul's getting at? No. No, Paul, Paul is saying, hey, there's a kind of knowledge that puffs up, and that is what I want to address. But if it's partnered with love, then it builds up. Some verses that I think will help us see this. We see Jesus um, when he is giving his apostles the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, hey, as you go out, teach. Teach them. Impart knowledge to them. Proverbs 18, 15. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge. And the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Hosea 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you. That's what God says to his people. Isaiah five thirteen. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Again, Proverbs 15, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. Colossians 1.9, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And then in the beginning of this book, we saw in, in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul write to them, to the Corinthians, that in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing. He's not saying forget knowledge and just love. Saying there's a difference here between the kind of knowledge that you guys have and the kind of knowledge that I want you to have. It's similar for those who are married in here. It would make for a poor marriage if you told your spouse, hey, today was our wedding day, and from this point on, I am not going to take any time to get to know you better. I've known you well enough to enter into a covenant with you, and I think that's, that's sufficient. I'm not going to try to get to know you any better. That would make for a poor marriage. And so Paul is saying, hey, continue to pursue knowledge. This is the way that you grow in holiness, the way that you grow in sanctification. But he's saying that knowledge alone, divorced from love, puffs up. So now if you look at verses 2 through 3, we see Paul kind of setting the stage 
for what he's going to get ready to say. Because if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. They're saying, you all claim to have knowledge, but if someone among you thinks that they know something, here's the test. Here's the test to determine whether they really know it. Is this person using his knowledge to build up other Christians? Is it leading to greater love for God and greater love for his people? So now Paul makes the point. He says, if, if we love God, we are known by God. And that known there, in the original language, that's in a perfect tense. Which means he cannot know you any more than he per- already does. It's perfected knowledge. He knows everything about your past, everything about your present, and everything about your future. He cannot know you any more than he already does know you. And so if you are a Christian this morning, that should bring you great security, great comfort, knowing that if you sinned this week, as we corporately did a confession of sin, we recognize that we fall short, we sin every day. Know that God knew about that sin before he ever chose you. He knew you would commit that, and yet he still loves you and still chose you, still elected you to and brought him to himself. You are secure in Christ. Now, John Piper helpfully points out that this is, there's, there's a strange flow right here. If you read that passage, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. You would think that the next verse would say, but if he knows as he ought to know, then he is known by God. Right? That, that would seem to fit the flow. But he says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So I think what he's getting at there is that he's implying that no one truly knows, as he ought to know, as Paul says, if he is lacking love for God. So if your knowledge is not leading to a greater love for God, then you don't really know as you ought to know. We see Christ not only giving us knowledge of, of who he is, but we also see him building us up into, his, into the image of him, into Christ-likeness. If we love God, we are known by God. God knows us, and so therefore he builds us up into the image of his son. And so if our knowledge does not lead to the building up of us to love God more and others, and love for, for others, then we don't know as we ought to know. God knows us perfectly, and in knowing us perfectly, he builds us up into the image of Christ. This, in verse 4, is what the Corinthians, quote-unquote, know. This is what they said that they know. Look in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. So again, there's quotation marks there. I think rightly so. Paul is pointing out that, hey, Corinthians, you know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. That's absolutely true. He says in verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's one God. So Paul is saying, yes, it's true. Idols are false gods. They're non-beings. They don't exist. Therefore, eating meat offered to idols is permitted. These idols don't exist. But Paul further explains in verse 6. He says, yet for us, 
there's one God and one Lord. So Paul affirms, just as those of the Old Covenant would affirm, that the Lord God, he is one. Paul affirms there's one God. There's no other gods. The Father says, is God. And Jesus Christ is Lord, is Master. Now, immediately the question is, does that mean Jesus Christ is not God? He says the Father is God, but Jesus is Lord. Well, that passage right there actually affirms the divinity, the godness of Jesus. Because if Jesus is Lord, that word is also can be translated as master. If Jesus is master, but the Father is God, that means the Father is not master. And so if, if it, would be, it seems strange if, the, if God is submitting to somebody else. So when, when Paul says that Jesus is Lord, he's saying that he's also God. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And so not only is the Father God, but also Jesus is God because he is Lord. He is master. So don't be tripped up by that. But he adds that all creation was from the Father through Jesus Christ. We read this in John 1, verse 3, where we read that all things were made through him, the Word, or the Son. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so Paul is getting at that we were made by the Father through the Son so that we might glorify God the Father through the Son. Look with me a little bit closer at that first part of verse 6. It says, There is one God for whom we exist. So any created thing has at least two fours. There's a, there's a four in, the, in terms of for whom. Just think possession. Why does this thing exist? It's for whom. Who owns it? And then also there's a four in terms of purpose. So for what? So anything, any created thing has at least two of these fours. For whom? Who is it designed for? And for what purpose? So if I, if I make the best food in the world, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, then I'm making that for me, possession, for the purpose of eating it. If, I, if there's medicine, it's for those who are ill for the purpose of making them healthy. Do you see those two fours? If you have a car, it was made for slow human beings, for faster travel. So there's a possession, and then there's a purpose. Which means that God's people, those who have been redeemed by the glorious God, are in possession. The, the glorious God owns us. We are His. We are made for Him. Possession. But also, it's the same answer in terms of purpose. For him. We find our greatest satisfaction, our greatest, our greatest fulfillment pursuing God. And this is what Paul wanted them to know. He said, you are God's possession. Yes, in, enjoy food. These are non-beings who this meat was offered to. You can have meat offered to idols. You know this, Corinthians. But your purpose is ultimately to enjoy God, not meat. You were made to enjoy Him. He owns you. You are His if you've been redeemed by Christ. And you are His so that you may pursue Him. Yes, enjoy the meat, but that's not what you're designed for. Which sets up what Paul is getting ready to say in the next six verses. But, before we get there, know this. Knowledge without love is arrogance. It breeds arrogance. Knowledge is not a bad thing. But knowledge is always meant to increase our love for God and our love for others. It's what it's always designed to do. If it doesn't lead to that, then you, as Paul says, don't know as you ought to know. 
Knowledge is a means to an end. Greater love for God and greater love for his people. So Christian, are you growing in knowledge? Have you adopted the credo that I just want to love people? I don't want to get into the weeds of doctrine because that divides people. Are you growing in your knowledge? I would submit to you that you will not progress. You will not progress as a Christian. You will not grow into the image of Christ apart from knowledge. You need knowledge for your own sanctification. Now, this passage also serves as a warning for those of us who love to study God's Word. And so, the question that we need to, to know is, is our knowledge leading us to love God more? Or do we just love the knowledge? Do we just love having the answer? It's also leading us to love God's people more. Even, even the brothers and sisters that we disagree with. Is it leading you to love God's people more? This knowledge that you have. If not, it could indicate that our knowledge is puffing up rather than building up, as we saw in verse 1. Perhaps our heart needs to catch up with our, with our head. So look, acquiring knowledge is never the end goal. I'm trying to implore, implore you to, to seek knowledge. Do it. It's good. We want to be theologically rich. Because we recognize that if we're theologically rich, then we'll better understand who God is. And we'll more faithfully live for him. And it'll help others also know and love him and grow in their sanctification if we are understanding God's word in a rich way. But knowledge is not the end goal. The end goal is love for God and love for his people. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're here and you're not convinced of the Christian faith, maybe you have some questions. First off, thrilled that you're here. I hope you continue to come back. Thank you. But I would just want to remind you that Christianity is not anti-intellectual. We want to know the truth. We want to seek the truth. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We, we're not afraid of the truth. And so bring your questions. Bring your questions. So knowledge is a means to an end, with the end goal being love for God and love for people. And now let's look at the next six verses as we look at love. Now before we jump into that, there is a clarification that I want to make. So as we look at these next six verses, I want to just make sure we're all on the same page in saying that Paul is referring to gray areas, not clear commands. So as he talks about someone who might be a weaker brother, he's not saying, well, that weaker brother might not want to evangelize, so therefore we should not evangelize because it might cause him to stumble. No, we, it, Paul's not talking about clear commands. He's talking about the gray areas. And then additionally, he's talking about gray areas within Christian-to-Christian relationships. So if your non-believing friend seems to be tripped up by you acting like a Christian, it's not to say I'm going to lay down my rights to help my non-believing friend still be a faithful Christian. This is talking about gray areas within Christian-to-Christian relationships. Okay? I just want to make sure we're on the same page as we continue on here. So now verse 7. Paul says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So in this new church, there were a lot of new conversions taking place. People were being converted out of paganism, where they were previously sacrificing meat to idols, and they were submitting themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They were trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to take away their sin, and their lives were being radically changed. But their past was in pagan worship, where they would sacrifice this meat to those idols. And so they were astonished when they're in the homes of other believers and these other believers bring out meat 
And they recognized that, that's the meat that was sacrificed to the idol that I used to worship last month. I mean, they, they, they were astonished by it. They were just totally freaked out by it because it represented their sinful past. It's that idol, until recently, even though it doesn't have any existence, even though it's a non-being, until very recently, it was very real to them. So these new believers were concerned about seeing this meat. Now the older believers, who were more mature in their faith, they knew they had the freedom to eat this meat. They knew that idols were nothing. And they knew, verse 8, that, that food doesn't commend us to God. That word commend means to bring in the presence of, or to, to draw near. Some translations say food doesn't bring us near to God. So they knew that eating food doesn't bring us near to God. Jesus himself affirmed this when he was talking about something in this manner, but just in the negative sense. He's talking about defilement. In Matthew 15, 11, Jesus says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. So we, we are defiled. We are sinful. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And our, the actions that we've done those wages receive death. And so apart from Christ, we are in spiritual death. We are headed towards eternal judgment. But Jesus alone, we are all in need of being commended, of being brought near to God, being brought into the presence of God. Jesus alone, not food, Jesus alone can commend us or bring us near to God. And he does this for all who would call on his name, who all who would place their faith in him for the removal of their sin. So it's not the action of what, what your diet is. It's whether or not you are calling on Jesus Christ to take away your sin, to give you the righteousness that you need to be made right with a holy and righteous God. Food doesn't defile, and food doesn't commend. It doesn't separate us from God. It doesn't bring us near to God. Food is amoral. So Paul is letting you know you're free to partake in this meat. You're free to eat it with one caveat. One caveat, verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So Paul says that your freedom cannot become a stumbling block to a weaker Christian. Brothers and sisters, our actions impact others. Even when we think that nobody else sees. Our actions have an impact on others. So, as you go about your week, consider those around you. Consider those around you now. Consider those around you when you're at work. Consider the impact that your actions may be making, especially to other believers, especially in those gray areas where there might be some disagreement. Because Paul says in verse 11 that failing to consider others could lead to their destruction. And Paul points out that this is sinful. Verse 12. Thus sinning against your brothers... And wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So Paul, he takes it up a notch. He says, you're not just sinning against your brother. You're not just sinning against him. But he is a brother. We're called brothers and sisters in Christ because we are in the Son. We are now unified to the Son. So we're fellow brothers with Jesus Christ, fellow sisters with Christ. And so the scriptures consistently say that if you are in Christ and you are part of the body of Christ. And so if you sin against the body of Christ... You are sinning against Christ. If you sin against a member of the church, the church local, the church universal, if you sin against a, a fellow Christian, you are sinning against Christ 
himself. And by sinning against Christ, you impede your ability to serve God. Remember verse 6, we exist for the Father through Jesus Christ. So the Father made us through Christ to glorify Him through Christ. And so if you sin against Christ, that impedes your ability to glorify the Father. Love, Christian love, requires us to be aware of the weaker brothers and sisters that may be around us. Knowledge, without love, as we talked about earlier, breeds arrogance. Now, love without knowledge is just a happy, fluffy feeling with no substance. It's cotton candy. We want to be a people who pursue knowledge and love. And our knowledge increases our love for God and for his people. And so, Christian, if you're here today and you are frustrated with a weaker brother or sister, you're frustrated that they don't come to the same conclusion about this particular topic, I would encourage you to show grace. Be patient. Recognize that you weren't just weak, but you were dead in your sin. And Christ, who had all the rights that, would, that could possibly, you could possibly think of, he laid them down so that we could be brought near to the Father. Christ laid down his rights for your good, you weren't just weak, you were dead. Dead in sin. So if you're frustrated with the weaker brother or sister, show grace, be patient. Trust the Lord to work on them. If you're frustrated with a brother or sister who's not considering others the way that you think they should, so maybe in this circumstance you might not realize, maybe you're the weaker brother in, in this instance. Or the weaker sister. You don't think that this other person, this other Christian is considering you or considering others who might have a similar opinion the way that you think that they should. Think that maybe they are causing others to be a stumbling block. And if you haven't already, you should, you should consider speaking with that person personally. This is going to be the best way to do it. Have a personal conversation. We have brother-sister relationships where we can just have these conversations. This is what is great about being in the body of Christ, is that if we say something dumb, we're modeled by grace and forgiveness. So we can have hard conversations with each other and walk away loving one another because we are united in Christ. So if you haven't, consider having a conversation with that person. Again, show grace and be patient. Trust for the Lord to work in that person. But also remember that our union is in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in that particular topic, not in that particular thing. Thomas Watson pointed, points out, he says, the saints are the walking pictures of God. The saints are the walking pictures of God. If God be our Father... We shall love to see his picture of holiness in believers and shall pity them for their infirmities, but love them for their graces. It may justly be suspected that God is not the father of those who love not his children. So if you have a difference with a brother or sister, whether you might be the weaker brother or you might be the stronger brother, if, it, if you're not showing love towards God's people, and Thomas Watson says, you might not have God as your father. If you are in Christ, then you are, in, you are now united to the Father. And if you are united to the Father, then you love his children. So non-Christian, I wonder, do you recognize your weakness? Do you recognize your need to be commended to the Father? 
Do you recognize your need for a Savior? Do you hear this weaker brother, weaker sister, stronger brother, stronger sister? Do you hear that? Do you recognize that you are weak? That you are dead in your sin, apart from Christ? Do you recognize your need for that sin to be taken away? And maybe you do recognize it. Maybe you do recognize I'm not perfect. I've fallen short in a lot of different ways. What are you trusting as the solution for that? Is it how good of a neighbor you are? How good of a spouse you are? How good of, of a parent? How good of work you do? Maybe it's you go to church. Maybe you give to a charity. Maybe you give to the church. Are you trusting in those things to be a solution for your weakness? Or are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to take away your sin? Knowledge without love breeds arrogance. Love without knowledge is just a happy feeling with no substance. Verse 13, we now see Christian maturity. Therefore, this is what Paul says in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul, in verse 13, is explaining the Corinthians' duty toward one another. He says it's to build up, verse 1, not destroy, which we see in verse 11, or not to cause stumbling, which you see here in this verse in verse 13. Be willing to forego your rights for the sake of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you willing to do that this morning? Are you willing to lay down some things that you have the right to do for the sake of building up your brother or your sister in Christ. This is Christian maturity. And by displaying maturity, it prevents brothers and sisters from stumbling or from being destroyed. And if they are not stumbling anymore, if they're not being destroyed, then that enables more to grow in Christian maturity. So when we display Christian maturity, it enables others to grow in Christian maturity. And we see a snowball effect. So a question that might pop up is, So are you saying, Rob, that I should never participate in anything that could be remotely considered a stumbling block? Because that seems like quite quite the claim. There's countless things that could be considered a stumbling block for another Christian. So do we just need to start carving out every little area? Well, I would encourage you, we don't have time here, but I would encourage you to check out, R.C. Sproul has a great sermon on this called The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother. But what I want us to see is that in verse 13 here, it's an if-then statement. So look, look at me if you would. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, then you can insert a then, then I will never eat meat. And so the reverse could be said. If food does not make my brother stumble, then I will eat meat. John MacArthur points out, he says, we are to modify our actions for the sake of others but we are not to modify our consciences. The legalism of a weaker brother should not make us legalistic, only gracious. So in those moments where we find ourselves knowing that this particular thing is going to cause the weaker brother to stumble, it's in those moments where we lay down that thing. We lay down that right. The goal is not to begin carving out every little area that could potentially be seen as a stumbling block. The goal is to know when to lay down those rights and then to disciple that weaker brother into a stronger faith. Because if we just take our lives and cut out everything that could be potentially a stumbling block, then our lives are going to reflect a weaker faith. 
But if we disciple the weaker brother, we lay down our right for the time being, and we disciple that weaker brother into a stronger faith, then us and him can begin to resemble lives that resemble a stronger faith. So we don't just lay down everything and say, okay, I just, I just won't participate in anything. We say, I want to disciple you into a stronger understanding of this so that our lives both can reflect a strong faith. We do this ultimately because that's what Christ does. Christ laid, he didn't leave his people in their weakness. He laid aside his rights to ransom his people. We were weak. We were dead. And Christ didn't leave us there. But he didn't just save us and then leave us in, in that state. Okay, now, now you've been redeemed and so therefore I'm out. You're taken care of and so now I'm gone. No, he implants his spirit within us so that we become more and more like him. We grow in Christ-likeness. We grow in holiness. He laid aside his rights so that we may be redeemed and then grow into his image. We lay aside our rights for our fellow brothers and sisters for the sake of helping them grow in maturity. And then by being empowered by the Spirit, we help them grow in holiness. And so Christian maturity includes graciously laying down our rights when necessary and discipling the weaker brother into a stronger faith. Laying down our rights when necessary and discipling the weaker person into a stronger faith. It's twofold. Knowledge plus love equals Christian maturity. Knowledge should lead us to a greater love for God and love for his people. Love should lead us to awareness of the weaker brother or sister. And it should also lead us to find ways to build up rather than destroy or cause stumbling. And by doing that, it enables Christian maturity as we display Christian maturity. So let's be ready to lay aside our rights for the sake of building up one another in the faith. This is what our Savior did. If you are not in Christ, he has laid his life down for you so that you can be made right with the Father. He went to the cross on your behalf to pay for your sin so that you would not have to pay for that sin. He didn't have to. He willingly went. If you have not embraced Jesus as your king, if you have not embraced Jesus as the one who can take away your sin, I encourage you to do that this morning. And then if you are in Christ, let's recognize that Jesus sanctifies and strengthens us through his spirit. And so therefore, let's take time to strengthen and build up others in Christ. Make room in your schedules for one another. Find ways to encourage one another in the faith. Grab coffee, get lunch, make it a, a consistent habit, weekly, bi-weekly, even if it has to be monthly. Find ways to build into your schedule, ways to build up the body of Christ. This is what we're called to is to consider others as greater than ourselves because our Savior laid himself down so that we may be brought back to the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for seeing us in our weakness. Thank you for not leaving us there. Thank you, Jesus, for laying down your rights, your privileges as the Son of God to enter into frail humanity 
and to die the death of a sinner, although you were not one. Help us to live in a similar way of being willing to lay down our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And help us to do that with joy, recognizing that it strengthens the body of Christ and ultimately glorifies you, bringing glory to the Father as well. We love you. Be with us as we go. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.